Awesome. We'll be in uh, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Um, so let's begin. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, as all, we, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Micah. Well, we continue our journey through 12 weeks of meditation in the Our Father as we come up on Advent. By the way, we're going to start announcing this next week, but we're planning, tentatively planning on baptisms for Advent. So that will be in December. So if you have not been baptized, start praying right now about being baptized. It'll be the first week of Advent. But I want to invite you this morning, as is our custom, to breathe in to your body and just kind of check in. Uh, I've been immersed in a level of study around embodied Christianity for about the last year and how we tend to approach Sunday mornings in our brains, which is important. There's going to be information given to you this morning that will be helpful, but what is transformative is to be aware of what's happening in your bodies. And so as you're listening to this sermon, we together collectively are one in the voice of God, under the voice of God, through this teaching. He unites us, and so listen in carefully to where the Spirit moves you. In today's topic, you may find yourself in your body a little bit uncomfortable, maybe a little bit moved, a little bit pressed. Yes and amen? Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, gracious Creator God, we yield our bodies and our minds and our souls to you now. May this community you've gathered here on this Sunday morning alongside millions and millions of Christians across the globe and throughout the generations, may we be clothed in righteousness today. I pray that these saints of God would know the rightness and the righteousness that you have imputed to them, given to them freely by grace. And I pray more than ever in earnestness that today in their bodies and in their minds, they would know that they are infinitely loved and cared for, that you see them, that you see us, that you see this world, you see the chaos and the pain of this world, and you are bringing healing, not by crushing the enemy, but by forgiveness, starting with us being a reconciled people. And so may reconciliation occur in this room between God and soul this morning, And next week, Father, may reconciliation come between soul and soul, that we might forgive one another and be that countercultural, that parallel society of joy and peace and mercy, a gift to this world, Lord, to bring grace and joy and the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. We often start out our mornings with some sort of meditation practice or a mindfulness practice. So I'd like to invite you guys this morning to consider this question as we work our way through this teaching. What is your greatest need right now? Bring it to the fore. When you think about what you need the most right now, all of us have something on our list. What rises to the surface? What is pressing you most persistently? 
Now, I want you to hold that need in your mind and consider what happens in your body when you're thinking about this particular need. Maybe for some of us, there's longing. Oh, an ache. I wish that this need would come to pass. Maybe for some of us, we feel a weight pressed down on our shoulders, and we feel this like, I wish this burden could be lifted off of me. Possibly some of us experience a little bit of anxiety, maybe some fear. What's going to happen? I don't know what the future holds for me, some uncertainty. Maybe for some of us, when you hold this need before your Father in heaven, you find yourself a little bit frustrated, a little bit angry. Why has this need not been met yet? I have been praying for some of us months, years, decades. Now, I want us to hold this greatest need collectively, whatever it may be in your heart and mind and body, and I want us to talk about Jesus's perspective on your need through this prayer. Now, I have been studying the teachings of Jesus Christ for almost a quarter century at this point, 25 years, and just when I think I have Jesus completely figured out, he throws these curveballs at me that I absolutely could not anticipate. If we look at the sequencing of Jesus's prayer here in what has traditionally been called the Our Father, we see that he prioritizes our needs in a very counterintuitive, backwards way. Now, let's just keep moving through this little mental exercise. Hold your need before Jesus, and let's walk through the Our Father and see from the sequencing of his prayer, how he orders this prayer, what he thinks our greatest need is. So we say to our Father this morning, I need this, the weightiness, the burden, the longing, the frustration, the fear, the uncertainty. I need you to do this. And Jesus says, okay, let's start with our Father in heaven. First need for Jesus on the priority list is this dirt under his fingernails God who is, as we said in one session, eminent. That is, he is near. He is working in us and through us. He is working to meet our needs physically in this life. He is also simultaneously this cosmic, beyond, transcendent, incomprehensible, different God. This Father who is working in ways that are not our ways to meet our needs. But by the very sequencing of this prayer, Jesus says that our greatest need this morning is to be with our Father eminent near and our Father transcendent far and beyond. Next on the list of the hierarchy of the needs, worship him. Now we may find ourselves saying, wait, 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 worship him, hold on transcendent, imminent God? Shouldn't the next priority be asking for this gigantic needs that's just causing so much longing and crushing of my soul? No, no. For Jesus, that's not even close to the priority list. He says, hallowed be your name. Before prioritizing our requests, our hopes, our desires, our longings, our dreams, Jesus says, worship God. Worship the Father, hallow his name. We need to sit with that for just a moment because it is huge. This morning, according to Jesus, our first greatest need and our second greatest need, according to the sequence of this prayer, is to know and trust and respect and revere and worship God as Father and to hallow his name, to make his name glorious, to respect and revere his name. And now we might find ourselves saying, okay, Got it. Got it, Jesus. Now it's time for me to lift up these things that are weighing me down so heavily. No, 
Not yet. Third need, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Above what you and I think we need this morning, we need the reign and the authority of God's kingdom. Beyond our will being done, we need God's will to be done, not our own. And we need these categories of his reign and his authority and his will to invade and pervade and conquer every square inch of the cosmos, especially our hearts and our minds and our bodies bodies, and our souls. Fourth need, not to our weightiness, not to our anxiety yet. Fourth need, Jesus gets right down to the basics. He goes for the brass tacks, the concrete practical. We need food. Give us this day our daily bread. We need the daily provision of life-sustaining food. That should be on the top tier position on our hierarchy of needs list. And this is so funny to me because as affluent modern people, Daily bread hardly registers as any sort of priority for any of us. Shelter, food, uh, basic life-sustaining necessities, these are kind of an afterthought for most of us. We don't need daily bread because we've got a fridge full of moldy daily bread because taco stand is way better than toast. <laughs> now listen, I'm not, I'm not condemning us. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not condemning me. I got a fridge full of moldy bread because taco stand is better than toast. My wife says, we don't, we don't. (laughs) The reality for 99% of us sitting in this room right now is that we don't need daily bread according to our hierarchy of needs. Our affluence and our comfort has actually skewed our priorities according to Jesus' sequencing in this prayer. And dear friends, for most of human history, and right now on this moment, daily bread for most of humanity across the globe is their greatest need. We would be very wise as affluent, comfortable, belly-full Americans to prioritize when we come to this section of the prayer, gratitude and overflowing thanksgiving, that for us, daily bread is merely an afterthought. It is an immeasurably blessed moment that we live in today. And remember, friends, we are praying our Father. So when we come to this section, we are collectively leaning in and we are praying for those who are living in food scarcity, food insecurity. In this neighborhood, right around us, there are children who are suffering from food insecurity in this moment. When we come to this place of prayer, we pray for them. We pray for the situation in Gaza. We pray for the Ukraine. We pray for for this globe and the needs of daily bread, and we prioritize that. So, According to Jesus' hierarchy of needs, at this point, we've got the Father, and we've got worshiping the Father. We've got surrender and submission and yielding to his will. We've got food for our bellies. Now, at this point, all of us should be saying, okay, now it's time for me to launch into the weighty, anxiety-producing, perplexing, frustrating needs that I need to just get God to answer these things. And Jesus says, no, no, not yet. And this is classic. This is classic Jesus-style sort of disorientation. This is classic Jesus upside down, kind of jarring, kind of frustrating teaching. Jesus says, need number five on the list on your hierarchy of needs this morning, forgive us our debts. Forgive us. According to Jesus, we need our Father. We need to worship our Father. We need our Father's will. We need our Father's provision. We need our Father's forgiveness. Even saying that out loud can feel a little bit foreign and alien, almost like I'm speaking a different language. To suggest that after food, your greatest need, my greatest need is forgiveness is absolutely alien to the way we think. 
I know as I hold my hierarchy of perceived needs before God this morning, forgiveness actually finds itself pretty low on the list, if I'm going to be honest. I am utterly convinced that what I need more than anything are my dreams fulfilled, my definition of success achieved, my relational desires satisfied, my bank account fat and stable, and my emotional well-being propped up and supported. By Jesus' model, though, of prayer, he never even mentions those things. He says above that and beyond that and before that, you and I need forgiveness. Now, this is lost on us as modern people. The idea that we sit here this morning guilty of wrongdoing before a holy God feels a bit outdated, a little bit antiquated. Some consider the notion actually damaging, and some might even say this notion of a holy God holding us guilty before him. Well, that's a dangerous idea that triggers and does damage to the psyche. The collective social vision of God has reduced God or the gods from the holy, perfect, just, and wrathful God whose moral structures we have demolished and whose will we have declared war on, the collective social vision of God has reduced him nothing, to nothing more than, a, than an affirming therapist who we might seek comfort from occasionally. The gods of modernity would never say no to us because we are our own gods, creating our own definitions of morality, good, truth, and beauty. And in some sectors, friends, in some sectors, the notion of accountability to a moral and holy God is rejected wholesale. This past week, renowned Stanford neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky, I've been following his work for a lot, a lot of years now, he has spent 40 years studying primate behavior, and his, his studies have led him to this conclusion. So he just released his most recent book. It's a book called Determined, uh, A Science of Life Without Free Will. It's his whole expose on the philosophical conundrum of free will if we're just random happen chance and stance. Essentially, Sapolsky argues that we are byproducts of random chance, Therefore, because we are byproducts of the random collective collision of atoms and whatever, we do not have free will. Therefore, whatever we do is never, ever our fault. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this in the way that the article that was summarizing the book laid it in. From gunmen shooting into innocent crowds in Maine, most recently, to sexual assault, to war, to thievery, Sapolsky actually argues from a consistent, he argues from a consistent naturalist perspective. And he says, we have no actual moral agency. There's no such thing as moral agency in the random collision of molecules. <laughs> Therefore, he says, because we are all randomly collided molecules and nothing more than that, then whatever happens in the moment is actually beyond our control. We are slaves to behaviors that we cannot be judged for because they are not our responsibility. We are not governed by them, and we have no personal agency. How's that feel in your bodies right now? Gross, right? Yeah, so Sapolsky recognizes actually that this is a very extreme position. It's a consistent position, but he recognizes it's extreme in what he holds and that most modern philosophers and scientists are not comfortable with such a notion. You and I obviously are not comfortable with such a notion either. It's not easy for us to excuse the gunman's actions in Maine this past week because of the random collision of molecules over which he should not be held accountable. But... Regardless of our inability to do that, friends, each one of us still has this uncanny ability, this unending supply of reasons why we, quote, generally good people, 
unquote, sometimes mess up. <laughs> we are constantly moving away from our moral responsibility and culpability before God. Here's what we'll say in our unconscious or even in our conscious thought. Our social structures convinced us we had to do it. Everyone's doing it, so what I do can't be that bad in the eyes of God. Or we'll say something like, the power hierarchies of the day forced my hand. Sometimes you got to do a little bad to get ahead in life. Or we'll say something like, and I've heard this a lot over the last 10 years, the mental health epidemic has caused this catastrophe. You can't hold me responsible for the choices that I've made under my mental duress. Forgiveness? What? Why? Why would I need forgiveness? My life choices are my family system's fault, my society's fault, my leader's fault, my church's fault, my professor's fault, my emotion's fault, my mental state's fault. Now, of course, these all influence and shape our behavior. The point that I think Jesus is making and the Spirit is inviting us to consider this morning very deeply is that none of these things are absolutely determinative of our behavior, nor can they be used as the absolute scapegoat for our choices, beliefs, thought, life, and life. Jesus' instructions in this section of the prayer, they're like a foghorn on the shores, and they are warning the human soul that the blinding storms of self-deception are actually blowing us dangerously close to our demise. This prayer in this moment, dear friends, it is a dangerous prayer because it sets us down directly in front of our Father. It strips us of our excuses and justifications. It invites us to face ourselves as we are, to reflect on our lives, and to take responsibility for our choices and to ask for forgiveness. And as we do so, when we ask for forgiveness, remember the first priorities on his hierarchy of needs. We ask for forgiveness from a father who is near us, dirt under his fingernails, like us, Jesus empathizing with us, tempted as we were, yet without sin. We come to a father and we confess to a father who knows every thought. He is beyond us. He is aware of us. He sees us. He is able. He is kind. He is generous. He's compassionate. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. We come to a father in this moment of confession asking for forgiveness who actually loves us us, loves us beyond what we could ever imagine. He loves us with a love that will never leave us. And so in that moment of confession and asking for forgiveness, we worship and we respect him. We let his will become our will, knowing that he has sustained us with daily bread today, not to destroy us, but to have us as his own. Now, God's justice is touching and will touch every soul on this planet throughout history, and whoever will ever come after us. His holiness will hold every human being accountable to his moral structures and his ethical will. There is no living creature that will escape the holiness of God's perfections. He, as creator and perfect being, he defines right and wrong, good and evil, ugly and beautiful. And he does not take into account our deformed and fallen ideas about such matters. And so when we come to Father and we ask for forgiveness, we're actually being restored to God's vision of reality, and we get to experience the depths of mercy and grace in his love. It's helpful for us to remember in this section what the Bible says we actually need forgiveness for. Now, Matthew and Luke's account of this prayer, they use two different words. So Matthew says, forgive us our ophelima, ophelima. 
Roughly translated in our English versions, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our wrongs, our failures. Luke uses the more traditional Greek word for sin in general in the Greek corpus. He says, forgive us our harmatia, our harmatia, which is basically forgive us for missing the mark, for falling short, for not believing and behaving in accord with who and what we are. Namely, we are image bearers and representatives of God. We have fallen short of that. We've missed the mark in that. That is our sin. Some of us were around for the atonement theory series that we did last year, where we talked about what sin is. Remember, sin is a beast that tries to control us, this wild animal, so we have to tame it. Sin is also an act of rebellion, a declaration of war against God's will. And sin is also a sickness that has happened to us. And so in the biblical imagination, sin is something that is done around us, Sin is something that has been done to us, and sin is something that we do. And in the economy of God's perfection, all of this sin around us, done to us, and done by us, it creates this immeasurably unpayable debt. All of our failings require fixing, but we cannot fix what we have broken. And all of our sickness needs to be healed, but we don't have the cure. And so forgiveness is our only hope. Falling upon God's infinite grace and mercy is the only means of transformation and healing for our sins, our trespasses, our debts, our failings. Now, let's get get very practical for all of us. There are two primary forces that keep you and I from asking for forgiveness. Our psychology and Satan. (laughs) Our psychology and Satan. Let me just flesh this out for us a little bit. Our psychology. Each of us, whether we recognize it or not, we have an allergic aversion to being confronted with our need for forgiveness. Why? Because all of us have an unconscious mechanism in our psychology, deep in our psyche, and it literally makes our bodies react to such accusations. When I say, you have failed, you are a sinner, and you are morally culpable, you are accountable to God, what happens in your body? Just, just check in. Is there kind of a tension? Is there kind of like a resistance? Is there kind of like, hey, whoa, that's kind of condemning. Hey, that's mean. I didn't, Dan, I came here to be lifted up. I didn't come here to be finger pointed at, preached at, fire and brimstone. What's happening right now? You get angry maybe? Listen, all of those embodied reactions, all of those are brought on by what we would call psychologically shame. Shame is the underlying default emotion of the human psyche. I have this working thesis that most of what humanity does is to cover our shame. That sense of insignificance, that sense of smallness, that sense of failing, that sense of faltering. Most of what we do is to cover up that shame. And so in a teaching like this, where highlighting our failings and our sin and our missing the mark and all this hard stuff to hear, what shame does in the brain and the psyche is it attempts to take over control of our literal nervous system and it puts us into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Let me just explore this just a bit. Can you guys shout out some words for me that whenever I say the word shame, what words come to your mind? How would you describe shame? Let's get a little bit interactive for just a moment. Social guilt, okay, what else? Embarrassed, what else? Hiding, wrong, dark. Did you say dark? Dark, that's a good one. What else? Pride. What else do you feel in your body? Give me some, some, some adjectives for what you feel in your body when you feel shame. Gross, hollow, recoil, little, okay. So take all of those adjectives 
All of those adjectives and nouns and words around shame, those are all symbols for this unconscious and uncontrollable cascade, a cascade of neurochemical reactions that happen in our bodies when we are confronted with something that we want to hide. That is called shame. And what shame does in the chemistry of the brain, this is, this is just armchair 600,000 foot neuroscience right now. What shame does in the brain is it clouds reality. The language in, in, the, in, the, in the research field, it, it disintegrates. It disintegrates. So you, th- there's, a, there's a bit of your brain deep inside there, just right over your right ear, deep down in there. Whenever shame begins to take over, all this frontal cerebral cortex, this stuff that says, hey, put a break on it. Hey, you're in control. Hey, stay calm. Hey, it's all right. Make wise decisions. All this goes like this. Ka-king! And you what? We say you lose your mind. And what takes over is this deep, impulsive, primal thing, deep in the amygdala, deep in the nervous system. Shame is doing that to us right now in the middle of the teaching, dear ones. Shame is trying to get you to flip your lid, (laughs) to lose your mind as you're being confronted, as we together, I say we, to keep us here before our God. And so what shame does is rather than running to God for forgiveness, shame causes us to hide from God and to hide from each other. Shame causes us as we lose our lid to begin to suppress that conviction, to begin to numb out. Rather than listen to this sermon, I think I'm going to hop on Instagram and not pay attention. You know, it's just we want to numb out. We want to distract because shame is causing us to flee. Shame pollutes our relationship with each other and with God. And so then we fight. As shame comes up, we put on our fig leaves and we begin to say, I'm good. I'm not that bad. I'm better than that person. Look at everything else that I've done. I've never done that. At least I've never done that. I'm not that bad, right? Or shame paralyzes us and it freezes us in despair. I'll never get right with God. My sin is just too great. How could he love me? I'm too small. I'm too recoilish. I'm too dark. I'm too... All these things are happening in our bodies. He could never forgive me. I'm too ugly. I'm too dirty to ever be made pure. And it has been this way, the biblical authors tell us, from the very beginning. When we read the account of the fall of humanity, what we see is the archetypal pattern for how shame keeps you and I from forgiveness today. Genesis 3, 6 through 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They sowed fig leaves. They did what they could do to cover their sense of shame. The fig leaves are shame at work. Adam and, believe, Adam and Eve came to believe after the fall that in their naked and vulnerable state, they were ugly and wrong and not enough. And so they compensate for their smallness, their darkness, their recoilishness, their embarrassment. They compensate for it. They're not enoughness by trying to become like God. They take They take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then after the fall, shame convinces them that they must hide themselves and cover themselves. Then we see the fight or flight and freeze of shame. We see the pride and despair of shame in the rest of the account. I'll read it for us. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. At the root of your fear this morning may be shame. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? I think God's, the Father's heart here is just weeping. Who told you this? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I don't think he's raging. 
The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam and Eve and you and I tried to hide from God. And I want you to see that God pursues them and pursues us. And when he finds them, they go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Their amygdala, they've lost their top. Their, their, their cerebral cortex has just shut down. And so they are full on acting outside of reality as if God can't find them, as if God doesn't know, as if they could cover up their nudity in their own effort and in their own ability. And then they go into fight mode. When God says, what is it you have done? They say, fight. It's your fault. It's her fault. It's the devil's fault. And they finger point away from themselves in that fight space of shame. We are truly children of the fall because you and I this morning are all sitting in this room compensating for our own shame by a thousand different fig leaves that we construct ourselves. Be that religious performance. You guys know the self-righteous religious person. You know what they're doing with all their moral code keeping and judging of you? They're covering up their own shame. You guys all know the rebel without a cause. I'm going to stick it to the man. I'm going to do whatever I want because I don't care anymore. That despair, that resignation is a covering of shame. One is pride, the other is despair. But I want you guys to notice something so important in these narratives, and this is maybe where Neighbors tries to blend modern neuroscience, modern psychotherapy protocols and ideas with the roots of scripture, because it's not only our psychology that keeps us from forgiveness. There's a talking snake in the garden behind all the scene here. We don't have time to get into why it's represented as if a talking snake, but what I want you to see in this, in this session this morning is the snake is actually using shame within our bodies to deceive us and disintegrate us from each other and disintegrate us from God. Whatever this thing is, this talking snake, its agenda is to decreate Adam and Eve's sense of wholeness in their naked self with each other and with God. It is a, as Tim Mackey says, a chaos monster. It's a chaos monster, and it's using shame to convince Adam and Eve that they are not enough, that they should be like God, and then after they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the snake then convinces them that God is no longer safe and that God should be avoided, hidden from, and covered up. The Satan, I think is the way I'm going to start referring to this thing, rather than just Satan, because it's literally not a name. It's literally a, a, a noun. It's a, the accuser, the, the divider, the chaos monster, the serpent, the, this thing the Satan wants to keep us, keep you from forgiveness more than anything this morning because it knows that you need forgiveness more than anything else that you think you might need right now. I was recently turned on to a podcast. I don't recommend it if you're at all bothered by these types of podcasts, but it follows the, the, the goings-ons, the historical, literal events of a Catholic, uh, a Catholic priest who his profession, he's an exorcist, and it literally follows uh, Father Carlos Martins and details out the accounts of his exorcisms. And in one of the recent episodes that I listened to, this, they're recounting the, the story of a man manifesting a demon in the midst of confession before a priest. Now, Martins goes on, and he comes on after the actors do the reenactment of it, and he gives commentary on what was happening in these scenes. And he says, you need to understand, from, an, from a professional exorcist's perspective, one confession is worth 100 exorcisms. And so the devil will do whatever he can to keep us from confession. That, my friends, is where we're going to land the plane this morning, because the key to this greatest need, hold your greatest need before God right now. What is it? Father, I hallow your name. Your will be done in my life. 
Thank you for daily bread. And your greatest need right now is forgiveness. How do we receive forgiveness from God to reintegrate us? Next week, friends, next week, how do we receive forgiveness from each other? Which is going to be an even heavier sermon, but it's going to be so good. It is going to be revolutionary. It is the source of revival in the church when we forgive each other. More on that next week. How do we receive forgiveness from God this morning? Confession and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Straight up elementary gospel 101 stuff this morning, and I pray spirit come and warm the hearts of your people. Confession and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The characteristics of confession are right here in the Genesis narrative that we just read. Did you guys notice? God comes after Adam and Eve. God does not abandon them. God does not leave them in their failure, in their missing of the mark. God pursues them. God chases them and asks them, where are you? He comes after you right now, and he says to you, where are you? Where are you? His question is intended to pull us gently out of hiding behind our excuses and our justifications. And he is inviting us to turn toward him, not in fear, but in love. Where are you invites us to examine our lives and our choices, past and present, with him, to explore them with him as infinitely loved children. And then he goes on and he asks them, tell me about your specific failings, Adam and Eve. Tell me about the specific debt that you have now accrued. Tell me about your specific missing of the mark. He asked them specifically, have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat from? And so the Spirit pursues us this morning in such gentleness, and the voice of the Father asks each of us individually and us collectively uh, as a church, where are you? Have you allowed your heart to trust and pursue other gods? Have you lifted this world's values above my values? Have you used your body in a way that has broken you and is breaking others? Has your mind or your heart or your hand lied, deceived, thieved? The list of our sins, external in our behavior, internal in our thought life and belief structures, the list of our sins is literally without without end. And so what happens in this moment is shame wells up within our psyche, and the Satan begins to whisper, fight this, flee, run, freeze, suppress, numb out, avoid, don't listen, danger, you're being triggered, this is overwhelming. Hundreds of things begin to happen in this strange cocktail of our psychology and the Satan. And so we must, the greatest act of courage, the greatest act of courage for the Christian is in this moment to say, of our own volition, of our own moral agency, to say, I'm going to take responsibility, and I'm going to return to nudity and vulnerability right now with my God, and I'm going to confess, Father, I'm right here. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to define for you what good, true, and beautiful is. I'm not going to cover myself with my list of justifications and excuses. I'm not going to run from you, Father. I'm going to revere you and respect you. I'm going to love you and worship you. I have failed you and I have sinned against you as I've done my own thing again. You today have supplied me with life-sustaining bread, not to destroy me, but so you can heal me. This is what I've done. Here's where I am. Here's who and what I am. Here's where and how I failed. Forgive me. Forgive me.
And this, friends, is where shame is healed and Satan flees. The minute the Christian confesses, it's not the moment of failure. The Christian confessing is the ultimate act of victory over the enemy. Confession is not the moment of humiliation. Confession is the moment of nudity and surrender before God again. And it is declaration. It is a declaration of war against the chaos monster. And as we confess, we remember that the penalty has to be paid. Remember when we talk about all the injustice and you guys experience in your bodies, and I say, oh yeah, we can, we can say that the guy that shot up all those folks in Maine, it's not his fault. What happens in your bodies? You want justice, right? You want vengeance. Why? Because God is a God of justice. We, justice is hardwired into our biology. And so when forgiveness is given through our confession, we immediately find ourselves saying, wait, who paid the price? Who's going to pay the penalty? How is this going to be taken care of? The penalty has to be endured. The failing has to be fixed. And we cannot fix it. If we were to try to fix with our fig leaves of performance and religion and moral code keeping or rebellion and resignation and whatever else we try to fig leaf up our shame with, if we were trying to hold that before God and say, now, now forgive me, it would be like a gnat flying into the sun. We would just be annihilated. And so God has to pay the debt. God has to endure the penalty. God has to fix the breaking as a gift of his grace. And so we stop covering ourselves. God saw that Adam and Eve had made their coverings and couldn't save them. But what I want you to see in the narrative is Genesis 3.21. He had to clothe them in death. Their their self-grown fig leaves couldn't cover them. He had to cover them in death. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Which, by the way, when you get to chapter 4, Abel brings some sort of vegetables to God, fig leaves of some sort. And Cain, excuse me, Cain brings, excuse me, Cain brings some sort of farmed vegetables, fig leaves. What does Abel bring? Death. There's this narratival reality beginning at the very beginning that we can't grow and cover ourselves. God has to cover us in a substitute by death. And so 2,000 years ago, this is love for you right now, infinite love beyond your wildest imagination. 2,000 years ago, the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, was stripped naked and beaten to a pulp to absorb into himself the penalty of our failings on the cross. He has paid all of the debt that all of us owe in full with his life. He fixed what we have all broken and will break. Isaiah would say, by his wounds, our sickness of sin is actually healed completely. And so for us this morning as Christians, when we pray the Our Father, we come to this section and we pray, forgive me. And then we follow that request with a clear confession of sin. And then we follow that confession by placing the full weight of our life into the covering death of Jesus Christ in our place, his death and his resurrection. And then by faith, we embrace the fact that he clothes us in his substitutionary righteousness, that we are seen by the Father as Jesus is seen, absolutely perfect. Just as justified means just as if I never sinned. Atonement, another big theological word, means at one with him. These beautiful, glorious words that I want you to, this morning, try to move them beyond your brain down into your body as we take communion. Communion is this tactile moment where we literally embrace the, the, mem- the memory of Jesus Christ dying for us, paying the penalty that we owed our Father. We eat 
the bread and are one with him, taking him into ourself. And we drink the cup and we are reminded that we are clean now, covenantally unified with him. Pay attention to your body this morning where you feel shame and bring that, bring, bring that miracle that is the cerebral frontal cortex right back to the front and breathe. Bring yourself to a place of calm and rest and surrender to your Father who loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This means that we can come to him as sinners this morning, made saints by the righteousness of Jesus, and partake of communion together. Father, meet with us now, I pray. And in your forgiveness, may we experience peace and love in this place. I pray that you would bind us together, Lord. Restore your church. Break down the schisms and the separations that keep us from one another and that block the goodness and love of the Holy Spirit moving through us. I pray, Father, that this morning in our bodies we would just be able to present to you ourselves as we are, a room full of people who are no longer ashamed but restored to that garden vulnerability, that garden transparency with each other. And I pray that that would play out in our communities even this week as we return to community this week to share with one another the delight, the joy of being loved by an infinite Father who forgives and forgives and forgives. You You may be saying as we come to communion, you know what, Dan, dude, man, I have sinned a lot. Look, I've probably, definitely, no doubt about it, 25 years of leading the church, I've sinned more than you. <laughs> I say that like Paul, the chief of sinners. His Pacific Ocean of grace is so much bigger than anything you could have ever said or did or not said and didn't do. Surrender to him wholly this morning as we prepare to take communion. Amen.
Let's sing together. Amen.